Well, I wonder, um, have you ever been in a situation where you've been plunged into total darkness before? Um, I spent a few months in Malawi in Central Africa on my gap year um, a number of years ago. And the, uh, in long way, the capital city that we were staying in, the power network, Malawi is a fantastic country, absolutely wonderful country. However, the power network um, wasn't quite as reliable in, in the long way as it is in London. And there were several occasions when we uh, had a massive power cut in the evening. Uh, the long way is also closer to the equator, and so therefore the, uh, the, the sun sets earlier and quicker than, than it does here. So by 7 p.m., you could be in, it could be completely dark. And therefore, if, the, if you had a power cut, you might be sort of sitting around in the evening for you know, a number of hours in complete darkness. Now, it's surprisingly uh, frustrating to be thrown into complete darkness for several hours. You, know, you might be in the middle of preparing dinner, and then suddenly the oven you know, is off. And, you know, okay, right, we'll just have to put that on pause. Maybe you think, I'll, I'll get some veg prepared. But using sharp knives in the dark, chopping vegetables, maybe with a bit of moonlight, is challenging. So you think, well, what, what else can I do? Can't read anything it's, because it's dark. And this was back in 2006. We were on a gap year. So none of us had, like, tablets or laptops or smartphones that generate their own light. Um, you didn't have a light on the back of your phone, you know, that we take for granted to look under the sofa every so often these days. Phones back then didn't have that. We had one handheld torch in the house. We invested in a few emergency candles to, uh, for, for when power cuts happened. Candles, it turns out, are rubbish. They hardly produce any light at all and they burn out really quickly. So I don't know how our predecessors managed to light houses with candles. Um, in the end, you would resort to just sitting around and having a chat together. But it's amazing how even that could be really quite tedious and draining because you can't see people's faces and you're tired and you're hungry um, and you want to get on with things. But then when the lights did come back on, it was like your life was magically transformed and you would find yourself, even if you're in a room on your own, you'd find yourself cheering out loud when it happened. Um, Not just because you can kind of get on with stuff now, but also because you can just feel your mood being lifted when the lights come back on again. What a relief um, to be back in light after so long in darkness. Now, the image of uh, a people who have been plunged into darkness for a long time suddenly being bathed in a fresh light um, is the image that Matthew wants us to have in our minds as we read through this next passage in Matthew chapter 4. The image comes from a passage from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9. And the key line uh, Matthew puts for us there in verse 16. Have another look down. Uh, with it with me. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, as with last week's passage, we need to be aware that there is a great backstory behind what's happening at this point in Matthew's gospel. We need to understand what's going on in that Isaiah passage that uh, Matthew is, is, is quoting here. Um, so we're going to spend the first half of this talk kind of unpacking what that is really about because the significance of that will then help us to understand why he's putting it here um, and how he thinks it's being fulfilled in what Jesus is doing, which will be the, then the second part of what we'll look at. So firstly, we need to look at why did the story take a dark turn? 
Now you remember last week that the, uh, the reason Jesus was being tested in the wilderness before anything happened was to see whether he would be just like Israel all over again or whether he would be a better son of God than they had been. That's what we were looking at last week. Because the story of Israel through the Old Testament was a story of great anticlimax. God had called them out of Egypt uh, in the Exodus with Moses and so on to be his ambassadors in the world. And when they got to the promised land of Canaan, they were supposed to be doing that job. And if you remember, as we said last week, God tested them in the wilderness on the way to see what was in their hearts. And they didn't do very well. And when they got into the land of Canaan, they didn't really do any better either. (laughs) And they remained in the land for a couple of hundred years, but progressively going in the wrong direction from what God had wanted them to be. They were a failed son of God. And God's warning had been that if they abandoned the the covenant, the agreement that they had made with him in the beginning, then he would allow the foreign nations to come in and invade them and take them off into exile as a judgment upon their rejection of him. And the whole thing would be back to square one again. So that's the background context uh, in the Old Testament. Now, have a look at this. This is a tablet that you can find in the British Museum. And uh, I just, I wonder, does does anybody know who the dude in the chariot under the frilly parasol is? Does anybody know who that is? Tiglath Pileser III is the correct answer from a member of the congregation. (laughs) Who was here at the 9.30 service. (laughs) And heard the answer already. I was going to get us all to play along for a little bit. Yes, that's correct. Thank you, uh, Mystery Congregation member. Tiglis Pileser III. I know you were all sort of thinking that anyway. Nobody wanted to shout it out. Um, He appears at several points in the Old Testament. He is one of the Assyrian kings. Um, He's also sometimes called Pul, rather confusingly, which sounds nothing like Tiglath Pileser III, but it's the same guy. He appears at several points in the Old Testament, and he is the first of the big Assyrian kings who comes and invades uh, Israel in the Old Testament. And this tablet comes from the Assyrian archives, which uh, we we excavated, and it's depicting um, an event of the deportation of some Israelite people from one of the northern towns in Israel called Ashtaroth. Now, this is also what Isaiah is referring to uh, in that quote in our passage um, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, when he says um, that that, that it's about the the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. If you go back and read it in the original passage in Isaiah chapter 9, what he says is this. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, as you can see on this uh, little map of Israel, Galilee is the region where Naphtali and Zebulun are based in, in, in the sort of northernmost province. And what happened when the Assyrians invaded was that they came down from the north because it's really hard to get in any other way because of the deserts and so on. And so therefore, the first cities that were um, carted off into exile when King Tiglath-Pileser came invading were the ones in the lands of Galilee up there. And that's why Isaiah is uh, talking about them. 
And as Isaiah was uh, writing about all of this in uh, 700 BC or so, this was all very fresh in the memory. He was living at a time when this first wave had already happened and these northern towns had been deported. Um, But the Assyrians haven't quite reached as far as Judea and Jerusalem in the south yet where he was. And as Isaiah looked upon what was happening and reflected on it, he describes the whole thing as being like a lamb that is now living in complete darkness. It's like the lights have just been switched off. And more than that, it's like they're now living in the region and shadow of death because battles have been fought and all the valuable people have been deported out the land like we saw on that tablet. And all that would have been left would have been the very poorest people sort of picking through the rubble trying to make a living, what was that? It was like a death pall had been laid over the whole region. And as you read on through the book of Isaiah, you can see quite clearly that this wasn't just a political tragedy for them. It was the judgment of God. The darkness that they had been plunged into now wasn't simply socioeconomic. They had also been plunged into the darkness in the sense that they had alienated themselves from their God over hundreds of years and were now reaping the consequences of doing that. And that's the way it had been for more more or less for several hundred years until you get the New Testament. It felt like the land had remained in complete darkness for hundreds of years. It had been resettled. Some of them had come back. But there was very much the sense that God hadn't lifted the darkness yet, not least because they remained under the occupation of pagan rulers who were sort of ruining everything. And so many people sort of wondered, well, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Is God ever going to forgive us for what we have done? Or will we remain in darkness forever? There had been a whole plan of God running through the Old Testament for them, for the world, but it now had this big question mark hanging over it. And yet Isaiah had also said that although Galilee had been the first region where the lights would go out as the Assyrian king came in, it would also be the first for the lights to come back on again when a new king came along. And several hundred years later of waiting in the dark, a lot longer than my power cut, Matthew wants to say, now the lights have come back on again as Jesus steps onto the scene. So let's dive back into our passage again. Now that we've got a sense of what that Isaiah passage was actually talking about and see how Matthew wants to show us Jesus bringing in the light. Have a look down at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew into Galilee Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebedon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Now you remember that in chapter 3, John the Baptist had been preparing the way for Jesus, but now we learn in verse 12 here that John has been arrested and put into prison. And as a result, Jesus withdraws from Judea, where John was, where he was, and back up north into Galilee. Here's a map again to help us. So Jesus and John would have been down in the southern bits, but now pushed back up towards the north. Um, But there's no sense in which he's lying low at all by doing all of this. In fact, rather, this seems to be the trigger for Jesus, that now was the time to get started. You see, the safe option, as he was pushed back up into the north, would have been to stay in Nazareth, 
which was a sort of the back end of nowhere kind of town. Nobody would go looking in Nazareth. No one wanted to go to Nazareth in particular. But instead, in verse 13, we see that he leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum, which was on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. There we go. And Capernaum was a great place to make his base of operations because the whole world came through Capernaum. It was a major training city. And so this is Jesus now stepping into his mission, stepping into the public eye and to get started. And so Matthew therefore lifts this passage from Isaiah and he drops it in at this point to show us that this is the moment that Isaiah anticipated. New light is breaking out into the darkness and it's coming from Galilee just as the prophet said. That famous passage that everyone at the time would have known about, about a new king coming from the north after the ruinous king Tiglath-Pileser. Well, that's what's going on here. It's happening. Now, there are several layers to what's going on in this passage. If you probe back into the previous chapter of Isaiah, you discover that this is all going to happen in Galilee in the north, when it really should be happening in Judea in the south and Jerusalem, because of the contemptuous attitudes of the people who should have known better in the capital city where the king was supposed to come from. And sure enough, as Matthew tells us, Jesus has been forced up northwards into Galilee because of the attitudes of the people in the south, putting John into prison. So there's all that going on. But instead, what we're going to focus on is what this new dawn looks like. Why is it appropriate for uh, Matthew to take this passage from Isaiah and say, now the light is breaking into the darkness? That's what we're going to look at Uh, in our second point. And the answer is this, that the new dawn looks like a new kingdom coming from God. Have a look down at verse 17 with me. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this announcement from Jesus is a bit like his headline manifesto of everything that follows in the gospel account. In both Matthew and Mark's account, this is like his upfront summary of what he is doing. If you were to ask Jesus what he was trying to do, he would have said, my job is to show everybody that the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. It's now come near. Now, of course, this shouldn't surprise us if we know how the story of the Old Testament went. This is why it's worth doing all the background stuff in Isaiah. Why had Israel ended up in darkness with all the lights off? Because God had originally established them as a kingdom, the best kind of kingdom in the world, with him living in their very midst, instructing them how to go. A glorious empire. But they had blown the fuse. And they had been taken into exile and left with the shadow of darkness and death over their land. They'd messed it up. And so what was needed was somebody to come along and sort it all out. To rebuild a new kingdom. To give them all a second chance. A chance to do it the right way this time. And sure enough, if we were to go back and read through a bit more of that passage in Isaiah chapter 9, which Matthew quotes, it looks like this. Here is the rest of the passage. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah is very clear that when light breaks in, it will be a new king reigning on David's throne and establishing a new kingdom. That's what the new dawn is going to look like. And of course, it is a kingdom from heaven that is needed. Why does Jesus call it the kingdom of heaven? Because whatever it is that he's about to do, it needs to have all the backing and power and force and authority of heaven, of God, behind it. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, as it sometimes comes up in the New Testament, can mean different things to different people. We've not always done the best job of getting our minds clear on what that phrase means exactly. And sometimes it would be more helpful to translate it, the kingdom from heaven... Because the point is that we need God to come and provide a new kingdom. Israel messed up the first one. And they're unlikely to be able to sort of sort it all out by themselves. Humanity can't just do it by themselves. It's going to require the power of heaven once again. A little bit like in the book of Exodus back in the Old Testament where God brought them out of slavery. It's going to require that kind of power and backing again. To bring about something new, a new kingdom upon the earth. Again, have a look back at the Isaiah passage. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. It is the zeal of the Lord God Almighty that is needed, a new kingdom backed with all the power and goodness of heaven. When we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in the Lord's Prayer as we do each week, this is what we mean. We need God to step in, to banish the shadows, to bring light in the form of a new kind of kingdom, different from the other empires of the world, different from the way that the world is normally run. And one that won't go wrong like Israel did in the Old Testament and end up in darkness again. Now there's another word in verse 17 which we haven't mentioned yet. Have a look down again. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why does the coming kingdom of God require repentance? Why do you need to repent if God's kingdom is coming. What does that mean? If you've been, if you're someone who's been around church for a while, then you might assume that, um, uh, that repentance has got something to do with sin here. We normally think of repentance as being to stop doing what you were doing that was bad and to change, change what you are doing, to turn from your sin. However, the word in the original Greek that we translate as repentance here, it actually has a rather broader meaning to it than that. It means something more like to change your mind. Now, certainly that would involve turning from sin. In chapter 3, when John the Baptist calls upon the crowds to repent, to change their minds, one of the things they do is to go and confess their sins and be baptized in the River Jordan. 
But what Jesus is after is something even more fundamental. He wants the crowds to start changing their thinking, to change their mindsets and their attitudes about God and about what God is doing in the world and in their lives. Because if you've been living in darkness for a long time, as they had, a power cut of several hundred years rather than a few hours, it's difficult to believe that there ever could be any light that's going to break in. It's difficult to believe that the promises of God will ever come to fruition. For the people of his day, they had been waiting hundreds of years for passages like this in Isaiah to be fulfilled. God had promised it, but where was it? And so Jesus' pep talk was, stop thinking that way. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to believe that the kingdom of the heavens is now at hand. That's how the two parts of that announcement go together. The kingdom from God really is on its way. And in Mark's version of the same event, Jesus adds the line, believe the good news, believe the gospel. Stop your skepticism and believe that this is what God is now doing. And then, of course, you need to read on in the story to see how that starts to come about. Okay, well, let's draw things together um, a little bit to finish. This is supposed to be an exciting passage. I hope that some of that has begun to come across as we've started to look at it. We're supposed to read that verse from Isaiah, that passage, about a great light dawning in the darkness and think, yes, that sounds fantastic. You know, I'd like something of that. That sounds like the sort of thing the whole world needs, in fact, not just the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee in first century Israel. And if we're thinking like that, we are thinking the way that Isaiah intended. If you read on in Isaiah chapter 9 and onwards through the book, the vision goes global very quickly. It begins in Galilee, but it goes global. Here comes a new king. Here comes a new kingdom from God. One that will be good news for the whole world, for the whole of creation, in fact. And Isaiah never gets bored rejoicing in this. In chapter 62, he says, I'm not going to shut up until all of this comes about. And the New Testament never gets bored about telling us, telling us about it again and again. And we shouldn't get bored by it either. This is good news for the world. 2,000 years ago, light broke out in Galilee, and the world has not been the same ever since. Jesus has been banishing darkness in all corners of the world because the kingdom of the heavens has now come near in and through what he has done and is doing and will continue to do. If you're someone here today who's come along possibly um, after a time away from being at church and you're sort of coming back and having another look or maybe you're somebody who's been invited along here by a friend and you're, you're, you're curious, you're not quite sure what to think. I've chatted to a number of you who might be in that sort of category over the last um, few weeks and you know, we always hope the room will be filled with plenty of people who think they're in that sort of, um, think they're in that zone. It's fantastic to have you along this morning. This is the good news. This is why it's worth looking at. Come to Jesus and join God's kingdom because it will be like light breaking into darkness. Change your mind about what the world is like. The world is not basically hopeless and pointless. A world that is 
you know, basically forever in the dark, where you, you, you do stuff for 80 years or whatever it is, if you're lucky, um, and then, you know, death ends everything and it really didn't matter that much after all. That's not what the world is like. Change your mind, says Jesus. Repent, because the kingdom of the heavens is at hand and you can be a part of it today. But to finish with, I just want to briefly clarify why coming to Jesus and joining God's kingdom is like light breaking into the darkness. Because you see, it's very tempting for someone in my position to take a passage like this and leave it all rather loosely defined because it sounds good. You know, come to Jesus and your life will go from darkness to light. Sounds great, doesn't it? But the problem is, is that our minds will fill in the blanks with whatever we feel is most pressing in our lives at the moment. Oh, he means my mental health will change from this to this. He means that that relationship will work out with this person. He means that my financial situation will sort out. It's not that simple. We live in a broken world, all of us. The promise is not that Jesus is going to click his fingers and alleviate whatever problems we might feel like we face at the moment, or at least not initially. No, the brightness is the coming kingdom of God and the King Jesus Christ who is bringing it. That's the point. The invitation is to come and join God's kingdom and let Jesus transform you into the kind of person that God wants you to be. And as God does that, that is how the the world will begin to be filled with light in and through what Jesus is doing. Because God is actually the one who really knows what the light needs to look like, after all. And believing that one day, because the end goal of all of this is that that work will be finished that has started 2,000 years ago and the shadow of death will be lifted once and for all and God will quite literally raise you from death, reversing that shadow of death forever. He will raise you from death to new life to be with Jesus forever in a renewed creation, enjoying all that God has to give us. Why don't we pray to finish? Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that 2,000 years ago, light broke out in Galilee as the Lord Jesus stepped on the scene, bringing a new kingdom from you to transform the world. We thank you, Father, that that project has not stopped and it will run and run until you transform the whole world and that we get to be a part of it today. Help us to believe, Lord, even though our lives are filled with so many pressing concerns, that it really is Jesus who was the one who will bring light into dark situations. And we pray this in his name. Amen.